Some of you heard me speak last week about a new series that I'm planning in March about the church and who we are and what, what we're going to do to get closer to God this year. I had asked two questions last week and just want you to think about these as we uh, go through the next two months and prepare for a new season and a new challenge that I'm hoping to start in March about uh, how are we going to get closer to God this year. And what does God say to the church in 2022? What does God want for this church, for the body of Christ, but especially for our body as we are, as we are spread out as a part of our church now, uh, at least for now, and maybe long term or people that live in different places, some near, some far. But what kind of church does God want us to be wherever we are as the people of God? So I'm going to be talking about some things related to that over the next few weeks and preparing for this special emphasis. Uh, uh, Really this year, what kind of church does God want us to be? I ask you to think about that and pray for that. I want to welcome you today to this Sunday. This is the second Sunday out of seven that we are coming back to the book of Revelation. Most of you know, if you've been a part of the church family, Uh, that we have been studying the book of Revelation. We started way back in the late summer and uh, did a a three or four month series in the book of Revelation. Then I said, we're going to set that aside and then pick it back up in January. And so I'm planning for January and through the first three weeks of February to be this focus and this study in the book of Revelation and God speaking to us in this incredible last book of the Bible. And uh, it's a time where we hear God speaking and God showing us that He's bringing to an end human time and human history. Last week, we were specifically in chapter 8 and chapter 9, and we described the opening of the seventh seal, how significant the seven seals have been in the unleashing and the unveiling of God's plan. And last week, we looked at the seventh seal, which in included the seven angels and the seven trumpets that announced the judgment of God. We also talked about briefly last week the significance of a certain time period. And that time period is three and a half years. If you read through the book of Revelation, you'll find several references to this specific time period. And we're going to talk about the significance of that a little bit later. It's it's the same time period that Daniel in his prophecy that we looked at many months ago, uh, spoke of the future and the end times and the direction that God was taking humanity. It's interesting how Daniel in the Old Testament was looking forward to that next big event in God's revelation, which was the coming of Christ. And now in the book of Revelation, we're looking forward to John the Revelator as he was given this vision by God of looking forward to the coming of Christ the second time. And so chapter 8 begins that, that three and a half year time period. And uh, really, there's two three and a half time periods, and I described it last week as seven years that are contained in these chapters in the book of Revelation that we've kind of focused on last week and we will the next three weeks. Chapters, basically chapters 6 through 19 are a seven year period. And that really helped me in kind of sorting out all these events in Revelation to understand that 
all these chapters uh, from 6 to basically 19 are a seven-year period. Sometimes we get the idea that, oh, it must be over hundreds or thousands of years, but those chapters seem to be, if we understand them correctly, and of course there's different interpretations of, of all these events in the book of Revelation, but it is a specific time period, seven years through chapter 19. Well, what we are going to read and focus on today are the events that, that seem to take place in the second half of that seven-year time period, the three and a half years. When we looked at uh, chapter 8 and 9, we looked at roughly the first three and a half year time period, the four horsemen that we talked about, and the fifth and the sixth trumpet. But as we move toward our text today and this, these chapters that I'm focusing on and want to describe a little bit, we're really looking at the second half of that seven-year time period. Last week, we looked again at the importance and the significance of the number seven through these chapters and how we just continuously find God revealing himself in the number of seven. We know that for God, seven was kind of the, uh, the completion number, a number that God used to show fulfillment. Seven days of the week, for example, in Genesis chapter one and two. But all throughout the book of Revelation are references to seven. And we talked about that last week. And uh, I won't repeat that, but realize that seven is so significant to the fulfillment of the events that we find in the book of Revelation. The second number that's very significant is the three and a half years. And we have found um, in the book of Revelation that the importance of three and a half years are told basically in three different ways. 1260 days, 42 months, and the other description that we also found in the book of Daniel was time, times, and half a time. One year plus two years plus a half year, three and a half years. And you have the kind of that code throughout the book of Revelation um, in order to have God describe this unique and this special and this important time period. In fact, there's five times in, in these three chapters that I'm going to draw from today to describe this time period, five times when God gives us this time frame uh, regarding uh, this specific time period. For example, in chapter 11, verse 2, in reference to the two witnesses, we read these words, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, cloth in sackcloth. And so you have John revealing this vision of a specific amount of time that this event will be included in and taken place. And then when you turn to chapter 12, you have the story of the woman and the dragon, which we will describe and talk about also. But verse 6 says, The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there's several more. Just one more that I'll read and mention in chapter 13 regarding the great beast of the sea. In verse 5, again, 
a reference to the time. The beast was given a, a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies to exercise its authority for 42 months. So there's a consistency. There's an order to all these chapters that have all these creatures and horrible events that are taking place. I said last week that God is a God of order. The book of Revelation might seem confusing to us, and we might wonder what this might mean or that might mean, but God gives it to us, and there's an order in that. And finding that order can be, at times, a challenge in different places and different ways. But this time period is important to understand in the book of Revelation. Whatever you, how, whichever description you want to think of it, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, whatever you want to call it, it describes a time period on earth that I guess the best, uh, the best way I can think of it is just to describe it as it is, and it's ugly. It's pure hell on earth. It is a preview of what hell and Hades must be like. That's pretty heavy. In fact, the things we're looking at today are pretty heavy. I said that last week, and it's going to be this way next week and two more weeks. I don't want to avoid this part of the Bible that is hard, that is sobering, that really makes us step, step back and think about what's going to happen and judgment on sin and the holiness of God. Uh, this is not a stretch of the Scriptures that I jump around and we just feel a lot of joy about, to be honest with you. It does emphasize to me some things about the holiness of God and how God views sin and that God is bringing justice and mercy to mankind. And even in these events, and I'll, I'll highlight a couple that we're going to read today, you still see God reaching out to draw man back to himself. And man has to make the choice. Man has a free will. And that doesn't end in these 1260 days, but... Man still has a choice during this time. We don't know a lot about the detail of that, but we do have some indicators that even in this hell that is on earth at the end of time, in these three and a half years, there's still a God who's reaching out. I've read several commentaries about these scriptures, and of course there is variety, but David Jeremiah gives an illustration that I thought was so good about this time period. And he talks about the intensity of the evil, the intensity of the hatred of, of Satan, and the destructiveness, and just kind of tries to capture that a little bit. And he talks about the difference between Satan having the ability today to roam the earth and tempt people. And we know that he does. Uh, James talks about temptation. It talks about, in the Bible, how Satan is like a roaring lion that is prowling around looking for someone to destroy. And so Satan is full of hatred. He's trying to destroy God's people today. But Revelation, these chapters, are describing a time where it's like Satan is roaming, but Satan is in this cage. And this is how I'm kind of presenting what this illustration that uh, David Jeremiah used. He says, 
it's now in Revelation in these chapters, it's like Satan is this raging, angry, foul, murderous, destructive being, but he's inside the cage. But the difference is, the world is in the cage with him. It's not that he's out in the world roaming around, but he's in his cage because he's been cast down to earth. And this earth is now his domain for this time period. We read that a couple of descriptions here that in these chapters for this amount of time, Satan has power in this world. Not absolute power, but the destructiveness. This is his kingdom until it will be taken soon in three and a half years from him. But it's like he's been cast down to earth and and all of earth is inside this confined cage with Satan for his destructiveness. And we see the horribleness of all these things that are going to be happening and magnified. I'm going to specifically describe five uh, events that are going to take place during this three and a half year time period. They're all in chapters 10 through 13. Again, I've kind of given it an outline last week, and I won't do that this week, but just tell you that today I'm going to be drawing from these chapters. Not, of course, all the events and beings that are there, but some that I feel are significant and just want to... All of them are significant to these last 42 months and what will happen before Christ's return. Christ's second return will take place at the end of this time with some other events. Woven together in this three and a half year short time is now the unleashing of Satan raging in a cage with a world trapped inside around it. It's the final throes of a caged animal. It is the desperation, horrible wickedness of the dragon of Lucifer, the angel that was cast out of heaven, and even we have a description of that in these chapters, and how he hated so much God, and he hated man that God created in His image. What we find in these four chapters is that enemy just uh, doing everything he can to destroy anyone. One description of this time period that we're going to look at today is in chapter 9. Verse 12, very brief, it says, The second woe has passed, and the third woe is coming soon. That's in the middle of these chapters here. The second woe is past, and the third woe is coming. The truth is, John the Revelator saw these events, and one of the ways that he describes it is the first woe, the second woe, and the third woe. And, uh, and, and however you understand that phrase, it's a heavy phrase. And John is saying it's just almost so much that I don't know what to do, but I put it in this category called the second woe and the third woe, and these events are going to take place like this. What happens in these, these chapters are a rapid series of events. You know, again, don't think of them as being spread out over 30 years or 100 years or a long time. These are happening within days and weeks and months of each event. Um, they're interconnected. 
and the timing of them are overlapped. And so you, you, can't, you can't say, well, this one starts and stops now, this one starts and stops then. Some of them are overlapped. And uh, some of them refer to events that have taken place earlier and that will take place when Christ comes back. And so they're tied together, but the concentration of these events take place in this three and a half year time period, uh, the, the large percentage of them. It also is describing uh, this chapter is events that are taking place both in heaven and earth. And we get bits and pieces and glimpses of these big events that are taking place in heaven and on earth. They are connected to each other, but they are individual in part, and they take place in, in different places. You have humanity's history that's playing out on earth, and you have Satan's attempts to destroy everything that God has given and the good that God's done. And then you have God Himself and His beings fighting Satan and fighting him to the end and the climax that will take place there. So you really have three different spheres or three different worlds that are being described in these chapters. And sometimes it's kind of hard to step from one to the other and know where the line is between one and the other. Testing. Okay. Thank you. For those of you that lost me for a moment there, I, I think my microphone died, so I went over and got a different one. Uh, so especially if you're out there and, and can't hear me, you can connect to that. I was saying how there's three different, I think of it this way, uh, I haven't read that anywhere, but it's kind of how I see it, three different spheres that are being described in these chapters. Human history, Satan's history, and God's history. Uh, and they, they, of course, play out in these events that we find here. Okay, chapter 10. I want to now specifically go to these Scriptures, and I'm going to read some Scripture with each one. And uh, I'm going to start with chapter 10 uh, here. Chapter 10 begins with another angel and a little scroll. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to, uh, to turn to chapter 10. If you want to follow along, I'm going to read the first four verses and then also verses 9 through 11 and talk a little bit about this opening picture in these chapters that are significant. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the, voice, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now I want to go over to verse 9, to the uh, end of the chapter. This is what John did in response to this vision of the angel and the little scroll. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. 
Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many people, nations, languages, and kings. In this little picture, in chapter 10, we have something that was revealed, but John was not to pass on. Interesting. I don't know what it is. I really don't know if there's really indication of what verse 4 says that God revealed, but then he said, wait a minute, John. I don't want you to reveal that. I don't want you to tell that. And so John, in this vision, it's like he takes his pen and he sets it down. There's something about the seven thunders that are going to be a part of the end of time. It does remind me that we don't know what all is going to happen at the end of time. We have an outline. We have significant events and places and creatures that are part of it. But there's a whole lot that we do not know. But instead, he goes to the angel and he says to the angel, May I have the scroll? In other words, may I look in the scroll? Can I see what the scroll says? And so the angel responds that he should take it and eat it. A reminder from the Old Testament and the eating of the Scriptures that Jewish boys were supposed to do at a certain time when they came of age to indicate that they were going to take in and they were going to follow. And also the the story of the prophet who was told to eat the words of God. In other words, take it in and know it and feel it. And and I believe uh, God was saying to John, John, you're going to have to really feel what's going to happen here, and you're going to write it down, and you're going to reveal that to people. And so this first event in, in uh, chapter 10 is, is God telling John that what I am giving you now, verse 11, then I was told you must prophesy again about many people, nations, languages, and kings. In other words, John, you're not done yet. John, you've had a lot. Boy, the first nine chapters, ten chapters have been incredible and amazing. But John, you're not done yet. You have, you have many more events to go. You have another three and a half years of earth history and human history. Plus, then you have a thousand years. I'm, I'm now going to the end of this. A thousand years. Then you have Christ coming back and the, the, great, the great white throne judgment of God. So, John, you have a lot more to see, a lot more to report a lot more that God wants the people of the church and the seven churches to hear. In other words, I think God was saying to John, John, you write this down because the people that live in 2022, there's a purpose why they need to know this and hear this. We've talked many times before about the purpose of the book of Revelation. This is just to me another reminder God saying there's a purpose for this. And we may wonder when we see all this all these pictures, and we wonder, what practical value does it have to us? We have to keep asking that question. As John was told, tell these people this thing, because there's a reason that God wants us to know about it. There's a reason why God wants us to see chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the two witnesses. These two significant beams, if you if you followed the series or read the books or or saw the movies left behind. Some have and some haven't. Some think it could be pretty close to accurate, and others think it might not be at all. But in the Left Behind series, you have the display of these two witnesses that come to Jerusalem, and they're preaching. And these two witnesses are a very important part of this time frame of three and a half years. In fact, in some ways, I think these two witnesses are, are one of the most significant things that we can get out of these chapters, is who they were and why they are there. In the face of all the judgment that is happening, 
I first said the consequences of man's sin were the four horsemen, and then God's judgment that He sends, and He's going to send over the next three and a half years. Again, you'll have the ongoing consequences of man's actions played out, and the ongoing judgment of God. God also is faithful during this time period that the truth is proclaimed and people can respond to it. And the two witnesses to me are, are a picture of that. It's a picture of God's faithfulness in the midst of the judgment. God sends two witnesses to proclaim the truth to the people that are on earth. So that every per- I, get, I, get, I get the understanding that every person on earth can hear the voice of these witnesses somehow. I'm not sure how that is. Who these are, of course, there's mystery to that. They certainly represent beings of truth from the past. They might represent Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, spokesmen from the past. Some commentators believe specifically it's the, that spirit of, of, uh, uh, of Isaiah that was brought back or other Old Testament people. I'm not sure because we're not told exactly who they are. There is a reference. Maybe I'll read verses 3 and 4, and that'll give a little bit to look at and and think about. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. That is a reference, it would seem, to Zechariah that talks about the two lampstands. So there's certainly the symbolism and the tying into the Old Testament prophecies uh, about the witnesses. Well, who are these witnesses and, and why have they been called? Well, we know that they are prophesying and representing the truth of God during, during these horrible events. Most commentators think that they actually come on the scene before the end of the first three and a half years, we know specifically they're there for three and a half years, and then they die, and then they're resurrected. And then the events take place that are later in these chapters. Uh, but while they're there, three and a half years, they're preaching the gospel. And boy, it, it, you, have, you have one of two responses when you hear the witnesses. You believe, and you turn to Christ, or you become so angry and hateful toward the witnesses and their message that you want to destroy them and kill them. And you have this, this going on during the three and a half years. And we read descriptions. We could read the whole passage, but I'll give you an opportunity to do that. They're trying to kill these two witnesses for three years because they hate them so much. Uh, uh, those that are offended by the gospel and the truth, and yet God protects them. And they're able to protect themselves for a time. Uh, as they preach the mercy of God, they, they call people to repent. And so I think you have, in the two witnesses, in the midst of this horrible time period, you have the opportunity for people to respond. I know people have asked me before, Pastor, do you think that people during this time period can turn to Christ? And my feeling is yes, and this is one reason I say that. Uh, the gospel is being preached. The other thing that's so true to me about it is that Man has a free will. God doesn't take away man's free will at the end of t- at the, during the end times. But man still has a choice and an opportunity. I've always said 
every man, every person has an opportunity to choose or reject God. And I believe it will be true at this time, too. Um, the events that take place will make it harder, but we do know that some, many, will come to faith in Christ. And so the message of uh, these two witnesses are very real, they're strong, and they're heard. And these messengers, these witnesses are hated. Uh, and eventually we're told that they, at the end of three and a half years, they are murdered by Satan himself, the, the dragon actually kills these two beings. Whether these are, are people or God sends some kind of angel or messenger, I don't think is clear here. Some people think it, it could be two people who rise up and God gives the, you know, the, the, the unique calling and the gifting and the power, the authority to witness. And other people believe it may be another term for a, an angel that comes. But because they are murdered by Satan, that leads some people to think that they were people. They were two people who, who were preachers, uh, for lack of a better word, and God gave special powers to. Um, but they're hated. They're hated so much, you see, in verse 10, that after they're murdered, it says, "...the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth." So you have such joy after three and a half years when their voices are finally silenced. Again, those that have rejected those voices, those that have turned away from God, hate them. They hate truth. They hate the gospel. Uh, and so Satan is allowed to take them. As Satan is allowed, and we might, un- we might ask, why does God allow Satan to martyr Christians? Why today, for this matter? Or why in this day? But God allows it. And in this case, three and a half days later, God resurrects them. And so you have these people coming to Jerusalem for a big party. He's called it. They're giving each other gifts. It sounds like Christmas, you know. They're giving each other gifts because these witnesses have been killed. And then three and a half days later, God brings back to life these two bodies that have been on public display. And they come back to life. And then, can you imagine the fear on all those that have hated Him so much? Fear. They, 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 uh, they don't know how to handle resurrection. They don't know how to handle the resurrection of Jesus. You think of how defeating the resurrection of Jesus was to Satan... And now how defeating the resurrection of these two witnesses are to uh, the world, most of who have rejected them. So God brings them back to life. And then He draws them up to heaven like He did Jesus. In some ways, these two witnesses are a lot like what happened to Jesus. He, he lived for three years or so in public ministry, something like that. He was put to death by Satan's uh, minions by Satan's work in the lives of people. And then uh, God drew the power of the resurrection, drew him from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. It's the same with these two witnesses. So these two witnesses had a very important place in this time in the book of Revelation. 
we move on to chapter 12, we read of the woman and the dragon. An interesting uh, uh, symbol of what was going on and what will go on during this time. Of course, the dragon is Satan himself. We know that. Uh, Throughout these chapters, Satan is called the dragon. So when you see the name dragon, you know it's Satan. Other creatures and beings have different names, like the beast, for example. The beast is not Satan. It's a different being or creature. But the dragon is here in chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. This we know, we're told later, is Satan himself. The woman we believe, and again, there's not a lot of detail about her identity, but it would seem from all the descriptions and context, is this woman is God's people, the Jewish people initially, and maybe then to include in these three and a half years those that come to faith in Christ. But the woman is described as as giving birth to a child. In other words, the Christ, and then the uh, the children that come from Christ. So the woman's children, the 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 woman's offspring are being attacked by the dragon in this chapter and in this three and a half year period. Satan hates God's people. Why Satan hates God's people so much is, is, is something to think about, but he does. He wants to destroy God's people. As if by destroying God's people, he can destroy God's purposes and God himself. And so, throughout this chapter... There's several descriptions of how the dragon is trying to destroy this woman. He's trying to catch her. He's trying to drown her. He's trying to snatch her children and kill them. And throughout this three and a half year period, you have Satan going after the woman, going after the church, going after God's people with all his hatred. And what seems to be a very colorful picture of of how vengeful Satan can be toward God's people. Uh, Satan hates you as a Christian. He is like a roaring lion, and he's going to try to find a way to hook you. We've said before how Satan will try to hook every believer. Think about that. Your life, your circumstances... Satan is trying to find a hook for you today. We see that in chapter 12 as being played out at the end of time, but even today, Satan is trying to put his hook in every single person. And these chapters show us and tell us of his hatred and how he wants to destroy. And it says in verse 17, chapter 12, if you're following along some of these passages, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So John tells us, he says, that's what Satan is doing during these three and a half years. He is going after the offspring of God. He is going after God's people to find any way to hook them and draw them away to destroy them so that they will not turn to God even in the end times. 
See, Satan has lost out on all those that have died before. And they're already in eternity. But those in these three and a half years, Satan is now raging to destroy. And the intensity of it is, is so high. We also have in this chapter the response of God through Michael, the warrior angel, and all his angels. And the battle that's going on between the dragon and the angels. Uh, Michael especially. Michael is this mighty warrior angel. And we just know little bits and pieces about him. And here is one of them in, in Revelation chapter 12. He's fighting. And his angels that are with him are fighting against the angels of Satan. Again, we have human history and we have this spiritual warfare between God and the demons and Satan, and somehow they're mixed together in this chapter. Um, we're told that, in fact, part of this chapter seems to refer back to the beginning because it talks about when there was this war in heaven and Michael cast Satan down to the earth. So the story goes way back there, and it's being finally brought to conclusion in these chapters in Revelation. In other words, you might say, Look out, earth, Satan is coming in his full force. And this will be his kingdom. This will be his kingdom for three and a half years. And then it will be taken forever. Verse 12 says it like this. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. In other words, heaven, it's your loss, and it's a good loss. But to the earth, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He knows his time is short. This time period is an extremely short time. That's where Satan is now. At this point in Revelation, he's in the earth. He's pursuing God's people. He is making... But yet still, people can turn to God. Satan cannot take the will away and change that. God says every man has a choice. And then we look at chapter 13. Chapter 13 are the two beasts, which are very important also in this three and a half year period. There's two different beasts. Verses 1 through 10 describe the first beast, and verses 11 through 18 describe the second beast. Um, Similar creatures. They're both described with the symbolism or physical natures of various animals that are wild and, and uh, 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 very animal-like. These beasts that are described in chapter 13 are not Satan himself, but they are two powerful beings that Satan is using during this three and a half years. Again, we've read about the dragon, which is Satan himself, but the beast described in chapter 13, not Satan and not angels. It would seem that the two beasts in chapter 13 are human leaders. It would seem that the beast that's described in the first 11 verses or 10 verses is someone on the earth who is able to 
concentrate power and influence and people respond and respect and listen to and are, uh, are deceived by and they gain control and everyone becomes uh, uh, tied to them. This being, this likely person, probably a political leader, a military leader, we don't know exactly, but it would seem that, it seems to me, this person is filled with Satan's hatred for God's people. This person becomes the tool of, of, of Satan. Satan's human tool during the three and a half years. We've read of Satan's person existence in the three and a half years and his demons and their work. But here we have man's part of the story. Two beasts that are leaders and they rise up and they're filled with Satan's hatred and they're wreaking havoc on the world. They're wreaking havoc on all those. You look at the end of verse 2. It says, "...the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority." So Satan, of course, the dragon, is behind the rise of this beast. Whoever it is, whatever country they're from, whatever language, whatever background they have, Satan has given him that ability, humanly speaking, to rule the world. And so this beast rises up. He's called the beast that, that uh, comes up out of the out of the sea. You look at verse 7 to describe him. It says, It was given power to, wa- to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, nations, and languages. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Again, a reference to those that have become believers. There are people during this time who have become believers and their names are written. Remember, this all takes place, we think, I I believe, after the rapture. God's people are taken. This is a time later, during this three and a half year period, where others will come to faith through the witnesses and maybe other means as well. And so... The beast is given authority uh, and all the people on earth who are not Christians will worship this beast, it says. All those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's also important to remember that it's not just the, the, uh, the sign of the beast um, or the mark of the beast. There's also the mark of God during this time written on the foreheads or at least symbolically the Christians are marked now too. That doesn't mean that they're spared from persecution or martyrdom, but God has marked His people during this time. And God sees His people during this time. And so this first beast will have a time period that, that uh, He will... And it says that He'll be injured. He'll almost die, but He'll make a comeback. And then the second beast comes, uh, comes into power beginning at verse 11. A second beast, perhaps another world leader who rises up to support the first leader, but then continues his work. We know of the second beast, a person. He's more cruel, or she, more cruel, more vindictive. His role will to make sure that anyone who does not choose to worship the dragon 
will suffer terribly. And you have the mark of the beast. You have in these verses a description of this, this beast that will stranglehold every person on earth. It also forced, verse 16 says, all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So this beast has this mark, this identifying way to know and to mark whether a person had chosen him or her or chosen God. And that leads us to what I kind of want to conclude this morning with, and that is a, a look a little bit deeper into the mark of the beast. I probably can't think of any symbol that's more feared by people who think of the end times and the mark of the beast. It certainly is a part of our culture and that description or that title, the mark of the beast. I just want to say today, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon about the mark of the beast in 32 years. And, uh, but here I am today and I want to say some things about the mark of the beast. It is a fearful spiritual reality. It's real it has symbolism, isn't? But it's it is a symbol, but it's a reality that will take place on some day, just like Noah's flood did. It will be a symbol that will divide every person on earth at that time. Every person will have to choose whether or not they will accept and worship the beast, or they will accept the seal of God and His salvation. Certainly, a spiritual reality for those who refuse to acknowledge God. For those that do not turn to God, they will, they will be given the mark of the beast. Looking a little bit deeper at the mark of the beast and what we do know about it. Number one, it is the mark of the second beast. I think some people have thought, and maybe I have, and maybe you have, but kind of think of the mark of the beast as being directly the dragon or Satan's mark. It really is the mark of the beast who is probably a human person, as I said, who is doing the work of Satan. He's filled with Satan. He's being led by Satan and everything he does is satanic. But it's the beast himself that this mark is representing. It's directly a result of his actions as he follows and is possessed by Satan himself. Um, that beast belongs to Satan. We know that this mark is a murderous mark. If you refuse to receive this mark according to this short description of it, then you will likely be murdered during this time. Not everybody will, but many, many, many people will be killed if they do not receive the mark of the beast. That means that people who refuse the mark accept and know that they're going to be, some will be tortured, some will die instantly, but many of them, all of them will suffer. And many of the lives will be taken before the end of this three and a half years 
because of this mark. Those who that receive the marks are also described as Satan worshipers. Uh, it's not just that you can be ambivalent about Satan and receive the mark so that you can buy groceries. The truth is, they go together. Somehow the link spiritually is there. Those that receive the mark will be Satan worshipers, and they will choose that. They will be a part of that. It will be such a, a link between the two that they go together. Uh, uh, Satan's worshipers will receive the mark. In fact, to receive the mark, I, I believe, I think, it seems uh, most directly that that means that you have said, I am going in with Satan. I am joining him. I am a part of that. And I want to have that mark. I believe that the mark of the beast is something that uh, is received intentionally. I believe that the mark of the beast, um, as I said before, is a matter of the free will of man. I do not believe that, that anyone will fall into the mark of the beast. In fact, I really regard it as false teaching Sometimes when some people may believe or present that the mark of the beast is just something that might happen to you if you're not careful. No. The mark of the beast is directly saying, I reject God's salvation and I choose Satan. The mark promised two things. You can buy and sell, and you belong to Satan. It will be a choice that those who live in this day will be confronted with. Unless you can go hide in a cave and not be found for three and a half years, and uh, I believe that this is something that every person in order to live, to buy food, to have food, and so forth, will have to come and stand before someone, some council, some official, and they'll be given the choice. You take the mark of the beast, or you are dead, or you are suffering. And that's how I, I, I look at this chapter, and I, I think it's saying about that. Those that receive the mark will do by choice, by free will. Uh, they will be tempted to. They will be threatened if they don't. They will be deceived about what it is. There's no doubt about it, but I believe that it will come about when people choose... Satan at this point. I mean, this the mark of the beast is kind of the pivotal, uh, pivotal apex spiritually during this three and a half year period. Uh, it might not be the only one, but this is one where people will come to a decision. Do I believe the witnesses? Do I believe Jesus? Do I accept Him by faith? Or do I reject Him and take the mark with all sin, man has that choice, and it's intentionally received. You can't fall into it. Let me read chapter uh, verses 9 and 10. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury. It's interesting to me, and that's a very telling verse there, if anyone it tells me that some will and some won't. There's a choice there. Whether or not one will worship Satan and receive his mark. 
for those that do not receive the mark, God has told them that there will be suffering and martyrdom. And He said, hold on to that. Hold on. After three and a half years, and God will come back and He will make it right. And He will resurrect those. For those that refuse it, and many will, they are assured of God's salvation and eternal home, but not God's deliverance from the evilness of sin in these three and a half years. Many will suffer, many will die before that time period over, but not all. In fact, we're told of a group of 144,000. That's a beautiful little interlude in these chapters. 144,000 of God's people, most people believe are the Jewish people, Israel, who will come to faith in Christ during this time. They're going to be protected from this three and a half years of, of horrible things, it seems like. Somehow God's going to put a seal of a hedge of protection around 144,000 people. I don't believe these are all the people, obviously, because there's going to be many, many people that will come to faith in Christ who will suffer. But we know of the 144,000 that it seems like, if I read this right, that God says these 144,000 are are especially to be protected by my hand during the rest of these three and a half years. Um, And we're going to pick up at that point next Sunday. That's my plan, Lord willing. We're going to start with 144,000 and what the rest of these chapters tell about God's people too during this time. We'll pick up there next week with 144,000. Thank you for being with us today. This has been a unique study, sermon, message. If you're visiting with us today, like I said, uh, uh, this series in the book of Revelation has uh, just drawn out for me so many things to think about and, and uh, imagine the, the power of God and the destructiveness of evil and that God is bringing this to an end and to a conclusion. I would just say to you today, those that are able to listen or hear, that, that the sobering message today of these creatures and events, I would hope would cause you to kind of step back a little bit, maybe from life, and just kind of think about an amazing, powerful God who loves you and extends His grace to you. God's grace is amazing. It's the only answer that God gives us to the problem of the evil in the book of Revelation is that He loves and He sent His Son Jesus to die for our sins. And I just want to encourage you today, if you've heard this message and you're thinking about some of these uh, creatures and these events, that you would turn your heart to Jesus and say, God, I know You hold this this world in Your hands. I know that... uh, You have all of human history in your hands. And I know that you're a good God and a loving God. And all the things about God that we embrace are the opposite of who Satan is. Satan has his day, and his day is coming to an end. Would you pray with me today? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you today for your grace and your love. God, what a heavy message in these chapters that carry so much uh, fear and pain and sorrow and brokenness. 
God, you're going to bring this time period to an end. And even for three and a half years, you sent those witnesses to preach your gospel so that people would respond to you. God, I pray that in this life, on this side of, on this side of the rapture, that we would have hearts that are humbled and open and receptive to you. God, may our hearts not be hard today. May they somehow be humbled by these humbling circumstances. Help us to call out to you with a humility and a gratefulness that's worthy of who you are, Father, I pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this chapter and these chapters. Help us, God, to learn from it what you want us to, I pray. Thank you for the opportunity to be together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. I'm glad you've been able to. Uh, Again, uh, our group that's on the phone here and others that are home or other places, uh, may God speak to you about His truth in the book of Revelation as we continue to look together next week. We'll continue in these chapters, Lord willing. And uh, I hope that you can be with us. Thanks for being with us today. Please don't be afraid to be in touch. Some of you uh, call me. Some of you talk to me. I do a daily devotional. Some of you know about. uh, I do a phone daily devotional uh, where I call and we read some scripture and pray together for our church. If you're interested in being on that call, if you would let me know that. If you would call the church or send me an email or a text or a note, we can add you to that. Um, We pray together every day, those that would like to do that. And if you want to be a part of that, let us know. Stay in touch. Uh, Be praying for each other. May God bless you and watch over you. Thanks so much for being on today. Hope you have a good afternoon. I hope you can be here tonight at 6 o'clock. It's going to be unique. I think it'll be really fun and really special. And I'm looking out the window back there. I can't tell whether it's still coming or not, but I hope it'll be mild by then. And you can join us tonight at 6 o'clock. God bless. Thanks for being with us.